Melbourne AA Steps Weekend 2015. This is David and Chris talking about the doctor's opinion. Hi, my name's David, I'm an alcoholic. And it's just great to be at another Melbourne AA Steps Weekend. We haven't had one for about six years or so now. Um, I'm going to get straight into it because we've got a few speakers and a few things to do. So uh, what, we're going to, what I'm, I'm going to do, and Chris is going to help me out here, is a presentation we've put together about a really vital part of uh, the AA Big Book, which is about the doctor's opinion. Um, the, uh, I remember in around... Uh, after AA started, around 19... Uh, Oh, what was it? 1944, Bill W. gave this speech to a bunch of doctors, the American Medical Association, and he acknowledged during that speech that a lot of AA's um, steps, well, the principles behind AA, came from doctors and psychiatrists. And he actually attributed the first step, uh, our first step, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. That came from Dr. Silkworth. And he also said that our second step or the suggestion of our second step came from Carl Jung, and you'll read about that story, uh, Roland's story in the big book, um, who went to see Jung, who suggested he needed a spiritual awakening. Tonight, because tonight's topic is step one, we're going to concentrate just on step one and talk a bit about uh, how uh, Dr Silkworth's contribution to AA. So this is step one. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And as we go through, I'm actually going to also mention a little bit about step 12, because you know, uh, part of my program to stay sober is I need to do step 12. I need to carry the message to newcomers, carry the message to other people. So in order to do that, I actually have to know something about step one and pass that on. So as we go through this and talking about step one, uh, a couple of times during the presentation I'll mention, so this, this is where, what we need to understand when we're passing on the message to a newcomer. So alcoholism's been around for a long, long time. A long, long time. It's actually mentioned in the Bible. You know, alcoholism and, and problem drinking has been uh, uh, right throughout history. But um, at certain points, uh, some people sort of tend to think that AA sort of coined the idea that alcoholism was a disease. But that idea had been around for a lot longer than that. Start, I'm going to go right back to 1819, where this guy, uh, Magus, Ho uh, Magus Hus, uh, was a Swedish uh, physician, and he termed the coin... Uh, sorry, he... Sorry. Slow down, David. I've been running around. Slow down, OK? He coined the term alcoholism, and he, he was the first person to really categorise alcoholism as a disease. Um, I want to mention a few organisations that, that predated AA, and some of the things that they were doing, you may, we may find actually similar to the way AA works. One you may have heard of is the Washingtonians. In about 1840, this group of drunks got together and decided to help each other stay sober. And they were quite successful for quite a while, and they grew really quickly. After about two years, they had uh, 16,000 members. And, uh, and then, but uh, they were starting to set up hospitals and things like that. But they didn't... It was sort of one alcoholic helping another alcoholic, but they didn't really have a program to do, to do that. It, and that really grew and grew for about 15 years or so. At one point, they had uh, 600,000 members. Not all of those were alcoholics because, you know, anyone else could join and a whole lot of people who just wanted everyone to stop drinking, you know, uh, uh, joined as well. So they weren't all alcoholics. Only about 20% were actually alcoholics. And after about 17 years, this whole thing fell apart. And uh, because they got involved with politics and... Um, and the temperance movement and stuff. But there was that time where there's a whole bunch of people, one alcoholic helping another alcoholic, didn't have a program, but they had a little bit of success, but ultimately failed. I want to talk about this guy. This guy's name is uh, Leslie Keeley. Interesting, he, 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 he described alcoholism as a disease, and he thought he had a cure. And he set up these, uh, these clinics right throughout North America and Europe. Um, really, there's around 200 hospitals and clinics throughout North America. And uh, he was advertising that he could cure alcoholism and he had a program and you'd go into, go into one of his clinics for, for 28 days, sounds familiar, but there was something different about his, his cure. What he would do is when you first arrived on your first day, there was an open bar and you could drink as much as you liked and they actually kept on giving you more and more drinks. At the same time, they'd start giving you this medicine every few hours and then twice a day you'd get an injection. And no one's really too sure what, those, what was in that medicine and the injections, but it actually made you feel really ill over a period of time. 
and, and drinking on top of it made you feel even worse. So after a couple of weeks of having, you know, being able to drink as much as you like, eventually the alcoholics would get to this point because they were still feeling so sick, they'd say they'd refuse a drink. And as soon as that happened, they took all the drink away. And so for the next two weeks, they detox. detox. And uh, so at the end of the 28 days, they've, you know, they've, they've detoxed and they'd come out of there and Killy would say, you're now cured. And lots of people, lots and lots of people went through that. Lots of people, there were lots of testimonials saying that, that really worked, that they no longer wanted to drink. But then they, then, then they started to find that there were some people sort of busting and stuff. So they actually started setting up these, what they called the, uh, the Keeley Clubs, which were people who'd been through his clinics and uh, were then helping each other stay sober. But once again, this was a big money-making thing for this guy. I think one of the reasons Bill W. wanted to set up hospitals because he'd seen this happen, that this guy made a lot of money out of, uh, out of these clinics and stuff. It was called the gold cure because it was rumoured that the injections you were getting actually had a traces of gold in it. So... <laughs> um, this idea that alcoholism is a disease, you know, as I said, had been around a while and there were lots of people offering sometimes really shonky um, uh, treatments. Here's someone offering, offering you know, 20, you spend, send $20 to this address, they'll sell you, some, sell you some pills and that's it, you're cured. Uh, what I really want to mention is around 1906. So you know, this is you know, uh, 30 years before AA. There's a thing called the Emmanuel mo Movement, which was this combination of psychology and religion. It came out of a church in Boston um, uh, by a couple of guys. And if they had a, a program that was helping alcoholics and people with other sorts of addiction problems. And this was the first time there was sort of like a, like a spiritual aspect to the treatment. And they were quite successful for a while. And once again, uh, people going through that program would sober up for a time. And then they found when they got, got together and tried to help each other, they could stay sober a bit longer. And this thing called the Jacobi Club was a club for men to help themselves by helping others. So you see some similarities there between that and what you know, AA came about later on. In fact, when AA first started in Boston, some years later, the very first AA meetings in Boston were held at the Jacobi Club. Right? So, and these guys, uh, Worcester and McComb, wrote this book about, called Mind, uh, Body, Mind and Spirit. Uh, and so they had this idea that there was this threefold uh, thing, thing that, that needed to be treated, the, the body, the mind and, and the spirit. As I said, they were quite successful for a little time. One of their graduates was this guy, Richard Peabody, um, and he, he got sober and then he went about trying to help other people and actually set up a practice and he was using a lot of the same methods that he'd learned from the Emanuel Club and he wrote this book, The Common Sense of, uh, of Drinking. So this is... Um, you know, just before AA started, this book was, print, was published and it was very well known. And we know uh, a lot of the early members read this book. Bill certainly read it and Lois and Dr Bob. And this was the book they were recommending to new members to read before the big book was written. And a lot of, a lot of practical advice in that book about how to, how to get sober and how to stay sober. Um, some bits out of it, like... Uh, Peabody said, once a drunkard, always a drunkard, or a teetotaler. So that idea of once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, came from Peabody. Uh, he also said in that book, half measures availed us nothing. And that's another, another idea that was picked up by AA. And if you know about the, the story in the big book about the businessman who decides he wants to make a lot of money and he stops drinking, he's an alcoholic, but he stops drinking for a long period of time and actually makes, you know, he's successful and then he, re he retires, he picks up a drink and he's dead within four years. Remember that story? That story came out of this book. It didn't come from Bill W's or, or AA's own experience. It was actually a case study that was in this book and, and, and AA actually used that case study as an example. So that's sort of the lead up to, you know, some of the things that were happening in, in terms of trying to help alcoholics before AA came along. Then, of course, we know in 1935, uh, Bill, w and, um, uh, Bill W had that spiritual experience and he, was, he stopped drinking and he wanted to help other alcoholics uh, by passing on this spiritual, uh, spiritual experience he'd had. And he and Dr Bob uh, got together and got so they both got sober and they, st and they started creating AA. And over the next four years, AA grew. And when there's about 100 of them, uh, so about in 1939 they wrote the big book and uh, that, that now and the big book we use now is uh, basically the first 160 odd pages are exactly uh, almost exactly the same as what was in that book and that's the beginning of AA um, 
So then they've got their own book and we don't have to rely on Peabody's book and those things. So when the, just going back to that, when the big book was first written, they, they, uh, before it was actually published, they sent out the manuscript, um, some copies of the manuscript to a whole lot of people for review, sent some to some Catholic priests, sent some to some doctors and psychiatrists and some people in the Oxford group, some other religious people, and said, what do you think of this, and, and got reviews back. The Catholic Church came back and said, there's a couple of things we want you to change. In the original book, they said, you know, if you do this program, it'll be like being in heaven. And the Catholic Church says, you can't do that. We get people to heaven, you can't do that. So, so they took that out and they said, you know, uh, you'll be rocketed into the fourth dimension. So that line there was put into the big book. They took out the bit about suggesting that AA could get you to heaven. Uh, at the same time, there was a doctor, and one of the doctors who read the manuscript said, that's all fine, but what you really need is another doctor. You need a doctor to endorse this. And uh, you need your doctor to endorse it. So Bill went back to his doctor, and, uh, and, and this is Dr Silkworth, and got him to write this part of the book. Hi, everyone. My name's Chris, and I'm an alcoholic. We at Alcoholics Anonymous believe the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book. Convincing testimony must surely come from medical men who have had experience with the sufferings of our members and have witnessed our return to health. A well-known doctor, chief physician at a nationally prominent hospital specialising in alcoholic and drug addiction gave Alcoholics Anonymous this letter. So this is the well-known doctor, Dr Silkworth, and, so, and this is the letter he wrote. To whom it may concern, I have specialised in the treatment of alcoholism for many years. In late 1934, I attended a patient who though he had been a competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of a type I had come to regard as hopeless. In the course of his third treatment, he acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery. As part of his re rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. This has become the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families. This man and over 100 others appear to have recovered. I personally know scores of cases who were of the type with whom other methods had failed completely. I think it was pretty amazing to get this doctor who'd been treating alcoholics for a long time to actually write this endorsement of AA. Uh, he says there, you know, he, he knows that there's around 100 people sober at this point and he says, I personally know scores of cases. In fact, in the original book it said 30 cases. Uh, Silkworth had, had met 30 AA members who had recovered. And uh, I'm just sort of thinking to myself, if someone came to your home group and there was 30 people there and, and, a famous, and a doctor came along and looked at your group, would he be so impressed by, by your recovery that he would actually endorse it? <laughs> so Silkworth was very, very impressed with this. I mean, he'd been, try, he'd been working in this field for a long time with very little success. He talked about having around, with alcoholics around only about 2% success, success rate. Right? And now here are these 30 people that he's met who've, who've uh, come to AA and got sober. He goes on. These facts appear to be of extreme medical importance. Because of the extraordinary possibilities of rapid growth inherent in this group, they may mark a new epoch in the annals of alcoholism. These men wait may well have a remedy for thousands of such situations. You may rely absolutely on anything they say about themselves. So already, after meeting only you know, 30 recovered alcoholics, he's seeing that this might be able to help thousands and thousands more. Notice here, there's no signature on that. In fact, the original book, in the original uh, first edition of the, of the AA Big Book, the one with the red cover, you can still buy facsimiles of that these days, didn't, have, didn't put his, his name to it. Uh, you know, he wanted to endorse it, but you know, he didn't want to risk his reputation that much to actually endorse a, you know, a different approach, a spiritual approach. But in the, in the second edition, he actually uh, put his name on it. I actually want to point out that, that last sentence. Um, it says, you may rely absolutely on anything they say about themselves. So here's a question we can ask ourselves. You know, can people, can newcomers or anyone else, can they rely absolutely on the things that we say about ourselves in meetings and when we're carrying the message? So the signature, as I said, the signature wasn't there originally, but the second edition that was added in, William D. Silkworth, MD. 
So, and this is the original. This is actually uh, uh, the the original letter that he wrote is actually held held at uh, uh, World Services in New York. Uh, it's pretty much exactly as it in the book as it in the book as it is in the book. But uh, uh, they've actually taken out William G. Wilson's name was in the original. They took that out, and they talk about a, he talks about a business. But apart from that, that's the original uh, uh, letter. So who is this guy, uh, Silkworth? Silkworth was a doctor, and he'd been working for quite a while at another hospital, uh, the Presbyterian Hospital in, New, in um, New York. And then in 1929, there was a big stock market crash and, uh, and the hospital closed down and he lost his job. And not only did he lose, lose his job, he lost all his investments as well. So here he is, unemployed, as a lot of people were at that time, very educated, you know, smart guy, but he's lost all his money and uh, actually looking for a job. And, and there was you know, lots of problems. Um, He's known as the little doctor who loved drunks. Now, at this point, he hadn't really got into that area, but he was walking down the street and he came across this guy he'd met before. This is Charles Towns, who had a hospital that was treating alcoholics and addicts. And this is the, an ad for it in, in New York. And he just happened to come across him and uh, Towns said to Silkworth, oh, if you're looking for a job, I've got this hospital. I'm needing, I need a new medical director. And it was just that chance meeting that uh, Silkworth actually got to, to work at Towns Hospital. This is how they described Towns Hospital. Charles B. Towns Hospital, founded in 1901, was well known then as a rich man's drying out place, a rehab for the wealthy, and it served a worldwide clientele. American millionaires, European royalty, and oil sheets from the Middle East walked its halls, side by side. Brothers in humiliation in bathrobes and slippers. I like that. <laughs> oh, I've been in rehab <laughs> and detoxes. Brothers in humiliation in bathrobes and slippers. <laughs> While he was working there, you know, smart guy, uh, Dr Silkworth, and he actually started studying what was happening with alcoholics. And it wasn't just casual observation. He was, he was taking notes and doing case studies about the people that were coming through the hospital and he was trying to help. And he came up with this, this way of describing alcoholism. Uh, and this is a really important thing, and this is an important thing to AA, that he started describing alcoholism like this. An obsession of the mind that condemns one to drink, an analogy of the body that condemns one to die, or go mad if one continues to ingest alcohol. So the two important words there from that are the words obsession and the word allergy. And this becomes part of, part of how Silkworth explained the disease, explained alcoholism to Bill, and then Bill uh, passing that on to the rest of us. We'll go on and skip a little bit, a bit further through this chapter in the big book. The doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us. As laymen, our opinion as to its soundness may, of course, mean little. But as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that his explanation I like that bit too. You know, I, I didn't understand what was happening to me when I was drinking it and wasn't able to stop. I couldn't explain it to myself or even anyone else. But I came into AA and people told, told me about their experience with this disease. And, and, it sort of, and, and this, this idea of it being you know, an obsession coupled with an allergy made sense. It started to explain to me as an alcoholic what had been happening to me. It's an interesting thing to me about this first step. It talks about we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, but our lives have become unmanageable. That word admitted means something specific. It doesn't, doesn't say we decided we were alcoholic or we discovered that we were alcoholic. It says we admitted we were alcoholic. And that to me means that it's something I already knew or suspected. You know? Before I came into AA, I knew I was in big trouble. I, I didn't, wasn't, you know, and I really knew I got to this point of hopelessness. Hopelessness. I already knew that and I came into AA and then this first step was presented to me and I was able to go, yes, that's me. So I admitted it and then I needed to accept it. it we'll go on and see where he actually starts describing the first part of the disease, the allergy. We believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomenon, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this never occurs the average temper of drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit, and found they cannot break it. 
once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. Well, that was happening to me. My problems were piling up on me and becoming difficult to solve. Now, so he describes it as, a, as an allergy. Um, this wasn't just you know, a little uh, you know, one article that he wrote. He had, he had written a number of scientific sort of uh, uh, articles about alcoholism where he described it as an allergy. This, is, uh, this was a, a paper that was written two years before AA's big book was written. Uh, it was a, a paper that was presented to the American Medi Medical Society where Silkworth sets out his ideas and his theories about alcoholism being a, an allergy and an obsession. Um, we're not going to read the whole thing, but it's a really, really interesting article to read. Uh, if you want to find it, you can find it on online at silkworth.net. But um, so I'm going to refer to a little part, a little part out of that as well, that goes for, gives us a further explanation. So, but what's an allergy? An allergy is an abnormal reaction to something. Now, some people are allergic to say strawberries. You know, uh, if they eat strawberries, not some nasty things happen, right? Uh, can, can, if, it's, if it's really bad, all sorts of things can happen. Like the, swell, the tongue swells up, can't swallow like I am now. I need a drink of water if you can, Lisa. <laughs> um, you know, you get that. Uh, uh, you can actually have anaphylactic, which is the, the, the uh, swelling and things of the eyes and around there, and the, uh, and the, even loss of consciousness and can kill you if you have uh, a reaction like that, an allergic rea reaction to say strawberries. Now, this only happens to a small percentage of people. For most of us, we can eat strawberries, and you know, strawberries on pavlova is fantastic. For a small percentage of people, if they eat strawberries, they're in big trouble. Good idea for someone like that not to eat strawberries. Now, what happens with alcohol and me? It's not that I get that sort of reaction. I get a I get the reaction I get to alcohol is I get a craving to keep going and keep going, and that doesn't happen to everybody. That only happens to a small percentage of people. So, in that sense. You know, it's, it's like an allergy because it only happens to this small percentage of people I get that craving to keep going. Now, when I first came to AA, I heard people talk about this aspect of it. You know, I heard people say, I start with the intention of only having one or two, but then I keep going. I get the taste for it. One's too many and a thousand's not enough. Once I start drinking, I don't, I don't want to stop. And we've all heard people talk about that aspect of it. And that's the first thing I identify with. Oh, there's other people like me who have that different reaction to alcohol. And for me, it's important. If I'm trying to carry the message, if I'm doing 12-step work, talking to someone in a rehab, talking to a newcomer, talk, you know, sharing in a meeting, I need to be able to illustrate this with, with examples from my own experience so that the newcomer can identify with me. So I can tell some stories about that. I can talk, tell stories about you know, finishing work, on a Friday night, and I've promised my wife I'm going to be home on time, you know, and it's all that, at five o'clock, I'm absolutely determined that I'm going to be home on time, but a couple of people at work are having one, one drink before they leave, and I have that one drink. And then I think, well, another one, I'll have another one. And the other, other work colleagues, most of them have actually then go home, but me and a couple of other people, right, we have another one and another one, and then we go, well, now they're closing up the, the workplace, so we'll actually go to the pub, Right, and we have another one and another one and I don't get home and I've mucked up again. And at five o'clock before I had the first drink, I had every intention of being home on time. But once I started, there was something different about the way that happened to me, something different to, to what my work colleagues had. I want that craving to keep going. I'll give you another example. I remember this is later on in my drinking and, uh, and I'd been drinking a lot and uh, this particular day and I ran out and I can remember thinking, I didn't have a lot of money. I had to walk, and it was about a 20-minute walk to the bottle shop. And I went down to the bottle shop and I bought um, a, a little bottle of uh, rum, a, a little you know, hip flask type thing. And I'm thinking, I'm walking back home again and desperate for another drink. And I tried, tried to turn the, twist the top off and the thread of it uh, stripped and it wouldn't come off. And it's just turning around and turning around and turning around. Now, I'm hang I've got this bottle of alcohol in my hand and I'm hanging out, right? And, and I've only got another five minutes to walk to get home, but the craving is just there. And if you're an alcoholic, you'll identify with this, this, you know, this thing of saying, I need to have this drink, and I'm actually considering whether I should whack the top of it on a brick fence so that I can get it straight away. Or can I actually wait another five minutes to get home and get a knife or something in there to get it? You know, that, to me, is that, is that craving. I have heard people say in AA, I didn't really feel the craving, uh, but that's often because we, ne we made sure we never ran out. 
right? <laughs> if you don't run out, you don't feel that craving to that extent. Tell you one, one other story. I remember actually in my early 20s working in an office and occasionally on a, on a, on a you know, Friday lunchtime, a bunch of people would go out for, for lunch and, uh, you know, at a local restaurant or something and other people would have a glass of wine or a crown lager or something like that. And I can remember saying, no, I won't have a drink at lunchtime. Now, the reason I was saying no is because I knew if I had one or two at lunchtime and went back to the office, I wouldn't want to work. I'd be hanging out, I'd be watching the clock, I'd be feeling uncomfortable. So I'd rather say no to the one at lunchtime right, and wait until 5 o'clock and knock off and go and have a real drink. Now, my work colleagues, they have a couple of drinks, they come back to the office and they're probably a bit happier than they otherwise would be because they've had a couple of drinks, but they don't have the same reaction as me. Now, they might go home, go home that night and not have another drink for the rest of the day. So even back then, before I had lots of problems caused by my drinking, even way back then, I knew there was something different. And if you had said to me, if you've got a problem with drinking, I'd say no, I can say no to the one at lunchtime. But the reason I was saying no is because subconsciously, you know, I did know that I was different and that if I started drinking, I, I couldn't stop. Now, I like that story because that's the one that lo- everyone identifies with. I can tell a story about loss of career, marriage breakdown, hospitalisations, those types of things. Some of you can tell me a story about, about you know, prison, uh, you know, prison time or, uh, or uh, car accidents, and I don't identify with that. Each one of those things some of us will identify with. But that particular story about not having a drink when I know there's not going to be enough, I reckon every alcoholic knows that, has, a, has an example of that where, oh, there's only going to be two, I, bet I won't have any at all. So that's why I think it's important to have that sort of story when I'm talking to a newcomer, because it explains that I already knew I had that allergy. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effects produced by alcohol. um, Sukwath then goes on and starts takes this idea further, and he starts by talking about why people drink. Now, when he's talking about this, he's talking about what are the effects of alcohol, and there's lots of lots of effects we get when we drink alcohol. There's that pleasant feeling that everyone's after. You know, we get, you know, it relaxes us. Uh, we, start, we can forget about our worries, those types of things. Uh, and our sort of thinking slows down a bit. And this is some of the reasons we, we like to drink. And uh, I, sometimes I hear in AA people say, look, I know, I, I know I'm an alcoholic because, I, you know, because uh, yeah, I know I'm an alcoholic because I drink for the effect. But the thing about that is that everyone who drinks gets those effects. Right? So just the fact that I drink for the effect doesn't make me an alcoholic. There's another bunch of effects as well. I start drinking and it increases my confidence. You know, I can start, you know, that, that type of thing, I can, it, it reduces social anxiety. I can actually go and ask the girl at the dance to have a dance. Um, it then starts impairing my judgement right? and it actually allows me to take more risks and that's why I can take on the bouncer at the, at the club and things like that. Yeah. Right? Now, the thing about those types of effects, those things everyone gets. Everyone who drinks gets all of those effects to a greater or lesser extent. And I can remember as a kid, uh, you know, well, uh, in my you know, 19, 20-year-old, going out, going out with a friend of mine and we'd have a couple of drinks beforehand so we could talk to the girls. So we'd have a couple of drinks and he'd talk to the girls and I'd talk to the girls and then he'd, he'd have a dance and then he'd end up taking her home. I'd have a drink and talk to a girl, and then have another drink, and then have another drink and forget about the girl, and then, you know... Now, we were both drinking for the same reason, right? We both got that same effect that we were after that gave, it, that gave us that bit more confidence on those types of things, but the difference between me and him is because I had that first drink and I had to keep going. He was able to get the effect that he wanted and then stop after one or two. Another thing I hear people say, you know, I drank because I, I, when I was young I felt out of place, I felt I didn't belong in the world, I had that first drink and then I belonged. Well, once again, that happens to lots of people, lots of people who aren't alcoholic. I, might, I know my older sister always, you know, has huge arguments with, with my mother about I don't belong in this family and she used to sneak out at night and go and, go and drink, go and get drunk. And the thing about that is that she's not an alcoholic because later on she just, she, she drinks normally. So the reason for drinking doesn't make me an alcoholic. The thing that makes me an alcoholic is that I have this different direction, a different uh, reaction, that once I start drinking, I want to keep going and keep going. So this is the difference. You know, this, uh, this other effect, this craving for more once I've started. 
I get uncomfortable if I don't have more alcohol and I'm able to justify any action to get more. And these things only happen to an alcoholic. Everyone gets those first lot. We get those plus this this last section as well. And that's an abnormal reaction. So once again, that explains, it, you know, describes that as an allergy. It's an abnormal reaction. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented. Unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks drinks which they see others taking with impunity. After they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful, with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over, and unless this person can experience an entire cycle of change, there is very little hope of his recovery. So Silk work is actually starting now to describe a cycle. So what happens to me as an alcoholic? I start drinking. Why am I drinking? I'm drinking because I want this sense of ease and comfort. The, the sense of ease and comfort that comes to everyone who has a couple of drinks. But then I get this extra effect. This craving kicks in. That means that I want to keep on going and keep on going and keep on going. And I go and it describes this. This is the allergy. And I go on a drinking spree. It goes out of control. And I do something that I regret. I, I, I break a promise to someone. I, you know, I, all sorts of things we do, you know, we do when we're on that drinking spree. And then I come out of that remorseful and I have this firm re- re- sorry, resolution not to drink again. That's it. I'm, I'm going to stop. And then I stop drinking for a period of time. And what Silkworth is saying is when I stop drinking, I've got this restless, irritable and discontent going on. You know? I stay sober a couple of days. You know, I'm, I've, just, I'm, you know, I've said to myself, I'm not going to drink for the rest of the week. I'm not going to drink for a month. But after a couple of days, I've got this rest, restless, irritable and discontent. And then this other thought comes into my head. Oh, well, I better have a drink then. I don't want that thought to be there because I've made the decision not to drink, but it comes up into my head and I start drinking again. When I start drinking again... To start with, I get that sense of ease and comfort, comfort, but then the allergy kicks in, the craving kicks in, goes out of control again. I go on a spree again, do things that I regret again, come out of that remorseful with this firm resolution not to drink again, so I stop. But when I stop, I'm restless, irritable and discontent. And then round and round we go, "This this is the cycle that he's describing. I have that thought to drink, I start drinking again, and that's that cycle that lots of us are really familiar with. I'm just going to read a little bit out of... This is, this is Silkworth's paper to the Medical Society, um, just a, a section of it that really describes what happens next. At this point, even during periods of partial or complete sobriety, he develops a state of anxiety amounting to a vague fear, <clears throat> then depression and lack of concentration with gradually growing indifference or complete apathy toward his former interest. Unreliability, changes in personality, loss of appetite, insomnia, and tachycardia. It's this, you know, heart palpitations. (laughs) (laughs) He's under such tension in the effort to control himself that he has to have a drink in order to hold himself together. At the same time, and we have observed very few exceptions to this, these individuals will tell you that they not only have no liking for liquor, but dread to take it. And to anyone who has watched such a person, it is obvious that this is true. But he believes he must have it, even though he realises that, in his particular case, a single drink will plunge him into such condition that a prolonged spree will be inevitably a result. After the first drink, and only then, does he experience Physical phenomenon of craving. I like that. It's a great description of alcoholism, of that, that aspect of it. When I'm just there, I really, really want to stop, but it's just got control of me. I've, heard, I've read other things that alcoholics have written about this state, but this is written by, by someone who's not an alcoholic. He's, he'd observed this in other people and was able to explain it back to us. Uh, one of the things he said about alcoholics and, and alcoholism is that one of the symptoms 
of alcoholism is that the sufferer wants to stop. It's actually one of the symptoms. When I get to this point, there's this desperate need, this desperate desire to stop, but at the same time an inability to do it on my own. And the other thing he points out there is that it's only then when I take that first drink that the, cra- the actual craving part of it, the allergy, kicks in. So here's, here's our cycle. I start drinking. I'm looking for that sense of ease and comfort. By this point, But now I'm not even getting that. I'm not even getting the good bit. You know, I'm, I'm starting to drink and I'm not even feeling that. But the allergy is still there. I'm on that spree. I decide to stop. You know, irritable, rest, restless, discontent. Round and round and round we go. And uh, it, gets, it just gets worse and worse. And once again, when I'm carrying the message, when I'm talking to a newcomer, when I'm talking to someone in, in a re- rehab or hospital, when I'm, when I'm sponsoring someone, right, when I'm sharing in an AA meeting, I need to be able to describe this, my experience of it. Not read it from the book, describe it from my experience of this is what happened to me. I was desperate to stop and it was just getting worse and worse. Remember, when my wife left me, up until then there was some sort of, sort of uh, break on it a bit because I was living with other people. I could, you know, as soon as she left, I was on my own, it just went out of control. And that's, it's at that point, uh, just totally out of control. It is noteworthy also that such patients may be deprived of liquor altogether for a long period, weeks, months or longer, for example, and become apparently normal. They are still allergic... So now he's talking about what if I am able to stop? And this can happen. You know, I'm on that, on that cycle and I get to this point with a firm re- resolution not to drink, but this time I'm really desperate and I'm actually going to reach out for help. And I go to a doctor, go and seek some counselling, do a rehab, do a detox, maybe come to some AA meetings. And with some help from other people, I, was fi- I, was able to, I, was, I would find that I was able to stop drinking for a, t- for a time with help. Uh, and, and, and certainly AA meetings can help, but uh, you know, hospitalisations and, and rehabs allow me as an alcoholic to stop for a period of time. And what, it's, what Supworth is saying is when that happens and I stay sober, I get past that detox part of it, past that seven or, seven or ten days where I'm really detoxing out of the system... And actually, I start feeling better. You know, a number of times I've gone into detox. I've come out at seven days later, ten days later. You know what it's like. You know, vitamin B injection, a few meals into me. I'm, fe- you know, feeling fit, raring to go again. Right? And things, life starts to get better because I put the drink down. I can actually start trying to solve some of the other problems I've got, got in my life. And actually, you know, get, you know, start getting on top of a few things because I'm not drinking. Maybe going to AA, but I'm certainly getting some help from someone else. And, but then I start thinking, oh, this is okay. I can do this. I can do this on my own. And I become self-reliant. And what happens then, this thought of drinking arises again. This, and this is the obsession that Silkworth is talking about. You know, I've stopped drinking. Life is getting better. But that thought of a drink keeps on coming back into my head, coming back into my head. And... But there's something else about alcoholism. There's something else. There's this obsession, and this is, uh, this is how uh, the big book... This is not Silkworth, it's further on the big book. The fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable, at certain times, to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defence against the first drink. I came to AA, I with that as well. So there's that obsession. I've stopped drinking. Life's getting a bit better. But that thought comes into my head. But I found I had no defence against that thought. And I would start drinking again. When I start drinking again, it sets off that allergy and the craving kicks in. And once again, I go on that drinking spree, drinking spree muck up again. All those problems come run, rushing back into my life, Right? And then I make that decision again, maybe get some help again, maybe come back to AA, and I stop again for a period of time. Whenever I stop drinking, life gets better. But the obsession is still there, that thought of drinking, drinking keeps on coming back into my head, back into my head. And eventually I give in to it because, it, because I have no defence against the first drink. When I give in to it, 
And back on that cycle again, and round and round and round we go. I remember early days, an, an, an older member you know, saying in a meeting, you know, how do you know if you've got a drinking problem? Well, stop drinking, and if your life gets better, you had a drinking problem. <laughs> so how do you know if you're an alcoholic? Well, if you stop drinking and your life gets better, and you go and pick it up again, and it turns to shit, and then you stop drinking and your life gets better, and you go and pick it up again, well, there's something more, isn't there? And that's that obsession that's, uh, that Silkworth is talking about. And once again, you know, when, I'm talking, when I'm trying to practice my 12th step, I need to be able to describe that to the newcomer, to the person in the rehab, to the person I'm sponsoring, to the per- person I'm sh- when I'm sharing in, in an AA meeting. In my, you know, in my case, I can remember getting to this point where I, do that t- that I did that first detox. You know, I came out of there absolutely determined not to drink, stayed sober for two months, I can do this feeling really great. I'll go up to Echuca to visit my parents. You know, they'll give me a pat on the back, say, really good job, but they didn't. Right? I've got a resentment against them. I'll show them. I'll pick up a drink. So I picked up a drink. I'm back on that thing again. All turns bad again. Go and see another doctor. He puts me into a psych hospital. I'm there for a while, getting sober, trying to do all the right things. They let me out for half a day. I had no intention of drinking that day. Things were getting better that day. I missed the train by 30 seconds. I found myself drinking again while I was in treatment. Finished that treatment, came out of there once again, absolutely determined not to drink. Absolutely, stayed sober for a little while. Things are getting better. You know, got, got a job offer to celebrate. I picked up a drink. You know, went into detox again, came out of there again. You know, got a really good job, one that I really, really liked. This was it, like the people I was working with in technology, cutting edge, cutting edge technology that I was really interested in. This is it, this is really great. Went out to lunch with, some, with the guys from work one day, had a couple of drinks. That night I didn't keep drinking. I thought, I've got this licked. There's one day I've had two drinks, I didn't go on that day. Next day I can get away with four, can't I? You know? Next day, you know, by the weekend, it was all over again. I'm back on that thing again. On the other hand, and strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol. The only effect effect necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules. So now he's talking about the solution that he's seen. He's seen this happen to people. He's been treating alcoholics for a long time and now he's seen 30 people recover. Right? And he's describing what happened to them. This, and he knows where it comes from. This comes about by rapidly going, going through AA's 12-step program. So what's our 12-step program? Well, that first step I, is about the problem. You know? I admit defeat in that first step. Second step is about the solution. And I start to believe that I can recover because I'm coming to AA and I'm, I'm meeting people who have recovered. Nice thing about that thing to remember about that second step, I get to choose my own concept of what that higher power is. Then I get to step three where I need to make a decision. Make a decision to try out the spiritual program, try to live by spiritual, uh, by spiritual principles. And then I've got to get off my bum and do some work. Right? Uh, take inventory and share it with someone else. Become willing to change and pray for help and look for the harm we've, we've done and make amends. And I go through that process and then it happens like that revolutionary change. The book t- talks about this revolutionary change that happens when I go through that process. Uh, the 12th step talks about this being a spiritual awakening. And this is what Silkworth is referring to when he talks about this psychic change. This psychic change that an alcoholic gets. This hopeless alcoholic who really wants to stop and ha- isn't able to goes through, that, goes through that process, gets that psychic change and now we start living in the solution. And Silkworth says, once you've got to that point, you know, the alcoholic is easily able to control the desire to, for alcohol as long as it continues to follow a few simple rules. And the simple rules are those last three steps, continuing to take inventory, prayer and meditation, and the really big, important, the most powerful step of all is that last one, trying to carry the message to the next person. So once again, this is something... I need to be able to share with the next person. When I'm carrying the message, you know, talking to someone in a rehab, in a hospital, you know, to a newcomer, to someone I'm sponsoring, or in AA meetings, I need to be able to describe this process as well. 
This is what happened to me. I ended up in a rehab, three-month rehab, absolutely hopeless, homeless. I had nowhere else to live. I started coming to AA. I was offered this program and jumped into it, boots and all, because I was desperate and I was inspired by you guys. And that change came about. That change that mean, means that I can recover from, from this disease. And I really want to pass it on to the next person. I need to be able to describe that to the next person, that that has happened to me. I just want to read a little bit, for, a bit more about what Sookworth said about the disease. Um, this is a, a letter that he wrote to the grape, AA grape, grapevine in about 1944. So AA has now been going about uh, nine years or so. And the grapevine had started and they were getting not just uh, stories from members, but they were getting other people to submit articles. And Silkworth wrote this article. Uh, you can also find this in, in silkworth.net. In both professional and lay circles, there is a tendency to label everything that an alcoholic may do as alcoholic behaviour. The truth is, it is simple human nature. It is very wrong to consider any of the personality traits observed in liquor addicts as peculiar to the alcoholic. Emotional and mental quirks are classified as symptoms of alcoholism, merely because alcoholics have them. Yet those same quirks can be found among non-alcoholics too. Actually, they are symptoms of mankind. Of course, the alcoholic himself tends to think of himself as different, somebody special, with unique tendencies and reactions. Many psychiatrists, doctors and therapists carry the same idea to extremes in their analyses and treatment of alcoholics. Silkworth is very strong on this, actually. This idea, you know, the, the idea that the alcoholic personality is, is different in a huge way uh, to other people. And sometimes I hear this in AA. It's, it's interesting. Someone will get up and say, uh, you know, I'm, like all alcoholics, I'm a slow learner. And the next guy gets up and says, well, like all alcoholics, I'm, very intel I'm above average intelligence. Right? And someone else gets up and says, like all alcoholics, I'm very sensitive. And then someone else gets up and says, like all alcoholics, I'm a callous bastard, right? <laughs> and, and these things, you know, and we, we tend, and, and each of us do it, you know, and I've done it as well. I sort of say, these characteristics that are part of me, and I think that they're part of alcoholism. But Silkworth was really clear on what his opinion was, that those things aren't part of alcoholism. The thing that distinguishes me from... The, from you know, those things all, all appear in all sorts of people in the world. There's lots of people with all sorts of different personalities and, and problems and, and, and you know, um, character defects, right? It's, it, but they're not unique to alcoholics. The thing that's unique to the alcoholic is the fact that I have this allergy, right? This allergy that when I drink, it goes out of control. And the other thing is that even though I want to stop, I have this obsession that leads, leads me back to it. Actually, an example of this, I'm going to talk about these three guys. You know, these, three, these three guys are talked about in the AA Big Book. We know in the back of the book there's a whole lot of personal stories. But there's three stories actually in the front part of the book. There's Bill's story at the beginning, but then there's these three stories in the section of the book that describes the disease. So there's Roland, he's not, his name is not actually used in the book. That's the businessman who goes to see, uh, goes to see Jung and gets diagnosed. Right? And then there's Jim, the car salesman. People know about him. The car salesman who, uh, you know, uh, who picks up a drink when, he, uh, when he's uh, drinking milk. Right? And then there's Fred, who's the businessman who goes from New York to Washington. Now, how are these people described in the big book? Now, think about you've got, if you've got an idea in your head about what are the characteristics, what are the perso personality types of an alcoholic. Got that in your head? Well, this is how these people are described. Roland is described as having ability, good sense, high character, good physical and mental condition, rational and well-balanced. That's Roland. Jim is a, has a commendable world war, war record, good at his job, likeable, intelligent, normal, a bit nervous, you know, a bit of a nervous uh, disposition. And Fred, Fred's attractive personality, makes friends with everyone, good income, happily married, stable, well-balanced, good judgement and has no excuse for drinking. That's how these guys are, are described in the big book. But all of them are alcoholics. Roland is described as an al chronic alcoholic by Jung. Jim is described as a real alcoholic. He's admitted that he's a real alcoholic and very far advanced. And Fred, he thinks he can stop drinking and stay stopped just, just on knowledge. But then he picks up that drink and then he realises he has this alcoholic mentality. And what he's talking about with the alcoholic mentality 
is not the characters, not those other problems. The alcoholic mentality, he's, he's having a really great day. He's, end of a perfect day, the thought comes into his head to have a drink and he goes and acts on it. So, how do I know if I'm an alcoholic? Right. AA suggests honest reflection. Now, sometimes with those other sort of allergies, sometimes it's difficult if I've got a food allergy to work out what it is and I need to go and get tests, tests and stuff to work out what allergy I actually have. I think Bart Cummings died recently, just this week actually. Um, he had, had trouble with some allergies and he went and got tested, all these different substances and things, and actually worked out he was allergic to horses, which wasn't good for him. Right? But it can be sometimes difficult to work out if I, if I have that sort of allergy. But how do I know if, I, if, if I'm an alcoholic? AA has a really, really simple test to work out whether I'm an alcoholic or not. We do not want to pronounce any individual as alcoholic, but you can quickly diagnose yourself. Step over to the nearest bar room and try some controlled drinking. Try to drink and stop abruptly. Try it more than once. It will not take long for you to decide if you're honest with yourself about it. It may be worth a bad case of jitters if you get a full knowledge of your condition. So there's the test for alcoholism. By the time I got here, I didn't need to try that again, right? I had years and years of experience. I knew that was true. So step one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Think about step one. There's no hope in step one. You know? Jim, Jim in, the, in the story, he'd admitted that he was a real alcoholic and very far advanced. He'd taken step one. Step one doesn't stop me drinking. The hope comes in step two. Step two, where we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. So step one comes from desperation and suffering and repeated failure. Not a good place to be, step one. Whereas step two, for me, comes from inspiration. I come to AA and I meet people who've been through the same or similar things to me and now they've recovered. So step one is being honest about the problem. I can ask myself, am I powerless over alcohol? And that's step one. Thanks for letting me share. Information about the annual Melbourne AA Steps Weekend is available from www.stepsweekend.aagroup.org.au. Thanks for letting us share.